Hello everyone. Welcome to the breakdown once again. This is our final episode before the selection concludes. Thankfully for some like me who are pretty tired of the discourse on it. And speaking of the discourse on the election, today we'll be speaking about foreign policy, which was unusually focused on throughout the course of this campaign. Predominantly, we saw Pulwama and Balakot and what happened right before the election and so inevitably for some it was in the forefront especially for the ruling party which even made national security a priority on the manifesto joining me today will be dr dhruva jayshankar of brookings india he's a foreign policy fellow there and he'll break down the events of pulwama and balakot and everything else this is only a part of a conversation a longer episode of this podcast will be out at a later date where we talk about various other things like india's place in the world and its critical relationships with some of the major powers you can wait for that if you're a foreign policy wonk like me but for now let's hear what he has to say now i'm joined by dr dhruva jayshankar who's a fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution in Delhi. Dhruva, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Before we talk about Pulwama, just because there is just so much talk around it in the media and in civil society, can you really help us understand what the Modi government's approach has been to Pakistan before this? Yeah, but before I get into the Modi government uh, view on Pakistan, and it has taken... Um, taken a, a a certain shift and I'll, I'll get to that in a second i think it's helpful to contextualize the india pakistan relationship and uh, the dynamic that we have have ex- experienced um i would argue that since partition since independence of, of the independence of both india and pakistan 1947 we've seen a quite a predictable um uh set of exchanges taking place between india and pakistan and this has been really driven by the power disparity in india's favor so you know at independence india was the larger country it had more of the political and financial resources uh and uh, pakistan was the smaller country and we saw basically from the beginning pakistan using a strategy that is still quite familiar uh which is using unorthodox or unconventional military uh forces to to uh try and uh initiate conflict with pak with with india uh india responding uh and you know benefiting from in some ways from uh, larger uh, larger resources and and then in uh, pakistan portraying that as indian aggression and using that to invite international mediation that would then um uh in some ways adjust the the power disparity in pakistan's favor and so treat india and pakistan as equals And this is what happened in 1948 with the intervention of the United Nations uh, over the Jammu and Kashmir dispute following the first Kashmir war. It's what happened in 1965 after um again a failed insurrection in in uh, what was Operation Gibraltar in in uh, JNK uh and and in that case the Soviet Union actually played the role of the mediator at the Tashkent conference. Uh and in the 90s and 2000s it largely was the US that that was uh, the Pakistan tried to use as the mediating uh um factor. India obviously for its own reasons wanted to uh uh deal with these issues bilaterally because obviously the power disparity played in its favor. Now three things happened very quickly that that I think shift changed uh this dynamic. One was the power disparity grew even further in India's favor first following the 1971 war when East Pakistan was uh split off was became Bangladesh. and secondly following after 1991 and and the indian economic uh, growth story which meant that uh the, um you know indian resources obviously increased significantly 
The other, the, th- the third big uh, change was the nuclearization of both India and Pakistan, which actually began earlier in the 1970s and 80s, but really was publicly uh, uh, acknowledged after the 1998 nuclear tests. And this, again, put uh, certain limitations on both India and Pakistan in terms of the kind of military um, uh, responses that they could employ. Um, from that time, Pakistan has somewhat successfully used uh, terrorism backed by its security apparatus, its, uh, its state, uh, to uh, affect these attacks against India, initially against civilian targets in, in urban centers in Delhi, in Bombay, Hyderabad, Bangalore, Jaipur. Uh, and then uh, more recently, after 2013, most almost all the attacks have really been against military or police targets in India, Pathan Kod, Uri, um, and, and then Pulwama. Um, and this is obviously done to, to kind of provoke India, uh, but India has been limited in its response and chose after the Mumbai attacks in 2008 not to use any military options. Um, so I think this is the, the, the kind of backdrop that I think is very sure. important. What Modi did after he was elected in 2014 was knowing that he was coming in with a certain reputation. Uh, after Mumbai, the uh, terrorist attacks had petered out a little bit. There was another wave between 2010 and 2013. Right. Uh, but uh, came in and with uh, basically expressly trying to engage with the Pakistani leadership and invited Nawaz Sharif to to his um, oath taking ceremony in 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 twenty fourteen. Um, this followed uh, two years of some very difficult attempts at engaging with Pakistan, and I think he made at least four attempts, which were politically very unpopular in India. And then surveys suggest that that it was one issue, particularly in his first two years, that that the public was very unhappy with. Uh, one was, uh, so I'd say he, he made this attempt, you know, in, in, with Nawaz Sharif by restarting national security advisor talks after shelling at the line of control. And then he also made a surprise trip to Pakistan. To then, yeah, then the surprise trip in, in late 2015. Uh, and then I'd say the last attempt was inviting uh, a, a GIT from Pakistan to investigate the Pathan court attacks, which was something which included an ISI officer, which was something which was very controversial. So until the summer of 2016, two years, you had this attempt of engagement, uh, even though Pakistan did not respond in a very positive way. And you did have attempts of you know, firing at the LOC, you had the Pathan court attack, you had the can- uh, meetings with the Hurriyat that led to the cancellation of talks by Pakistan, uh, eventually by Pakistan. Uh, and, and, and so you, you, know, you had these, and finally you had the arrest of Kulbushun Jadav in, in early 2016. The tipping point, strangely enough, was the summer of 2016 and the increased agitations in the Kashmir Valley uh, following the killing of Burhan Mani. And this was a situation that Pakistan, including Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, chose to take advantage of uh, and try to um, uh, uh, send uh, diplomatic emissaries around the world to resuscitate the Kashmir issue. Uh, which had been on the back burner until that point where, you know, the, right. the valley had been relatively easy. And at that point, you saw a, a very sudden turnaround in the Indian government's position, uh, a real hardening of, of Indian position, which has lasted for much of the last three years. And there were indications of this even before the Uri attack. Uh, for, for example, uh, Prime Minister Modi mentioned in the, his August 15th speech of 2016 that uh, for the first time, POK and Balochistan uh, he uh, did not uh, stopped condemning terrorist violence in Pakistan uh, for the first time. Right. So, so there was a sense that the position had hardened, and then the Uri attack took place, which led uh, to uh, the surgical, so-called surgical strikes, uh, a little bit later. And since then, we've been in a, basically a state of deep freeze in India-Pakistan bilateral right. relations, 
that continued. Um, we have had a few attacks after that, uh, none as major as the attack in Pulwama. And I think given what happened after Uri, there was an expectation that India should respond in certain ways. The fact that relations were already on a, in a very uh, bad state uh, did not help matters. And so you saw India in the immediate aftermath suspend most favored nation status uh, yep. from Pakistan in the day after um, uh, in February 15th. Sorry, because it's called the breakdown, could I ask you to explain the most favored nation status? Ah, yes, I'm sorry. Uh, so, so the most favored nation status is a trading status, which despite its name, indicates uh, basically normal uh, trade and uh, non-discriminatory tariffs uh, against uh, the other country. And so most countries have most favored nation status with each other under the World Trade Organization. Um, and India had uh, recognized this in the mid-1990s for Pakistan. Pakistan, for a variety of reasons, had never reciprocated. Nawaz Sharif actually at one point was very keen on reciprocating and, and was persuaded not to uh, by the army. But uh, Pakistan had not, over 20 years later, reciprocated. So it was a largely a symbolic gesture in the sense that there's very little direct trade between India and Pakistan. Uh, there's a much more indirect trade via Dubai and other places. Uh, but India uh, basically unilaterally uh, revoked uh, this. Uh, and then finally, of course, there was expectations of a kinetic strike of some kind, a military strike, and, and that did take place on February 26th uh, with um, an, uh, an airstrike uh, against a Jesh Mohammed facility, Jesh Mohammed being the group that uh, that took responsibility for the Pulwama attack of February 14th, um, but against a facility in, in Balakot. Uh, in, in, um, so, uh, you know, the significance of that Balakot strike um, and uh, is, I think, twofold. One, India showed a willingness to to target, uh, 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 to, to, to focus on a target outside of, pa- of Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. Um, and this was an old trick that uh, after every terrorist attack, a lot of... Um, a lot of the terrorists were actually would be withdrawn outside of POK because there was an expectation right, yeah. that uh, by Pakistan that India would not retaliate outside of POK. So that has now been tested. Uh, and I think the second is is really the, the use of air power for the first time because in, in, in that, that represents a change for the first time since 1971, India being willing to use air power. So this suggests, again, India a, a greater Indian willingness to respond under the nuclear threshold uh, to constraints that had been somewhat self-imposed, but also largely dictated by Pakistan. Uh, so that, I think, is really the significance. The day after that, of course, we saw a Pakistani retaliation, attempted Pakistani retaliation, in, during which a MiG-21 fighter was downed. Uh, the release the day after that, um, February 28th, of um, Wing Commander Abhinandan was, in some ways, uh, uh, led to... Um, uh, a, a thawing, uh, thaw, yeah. yeah, or at least a, a yeah, dampening yeah. Of, of tension. A Nobel Prize them. winning thaw, some would say. Uh, yes, I would argue against that, but, but uh, <laughs> yes. for a few reasons. But uh, I mean, I think Imran Khan in particular was under immense pressure, both from India and from the international community, to, yes. to to uh, to to let uh, him go. Um, but uh, so I think it was done under a great deal of duress, uh, and at the same time, also you know, Imran Khan did not. Um, uh, acknowledge at the time that there was conti- you know a continuing terrorist infrastructure. What the sources of the the problem were, uh, and in fact implied that Pulwama was an insider attack. So I don't think that it is really worthy right. of a Nobel Prize winning. Uh, no, it it's was, definitely not. Yeah. Although, although some certainly in Pakistan and, and in the international community saw this as some kind of uh, major uh, Pakistani PR coup.
Sure. So now, you know, we've spoken about a couple of things here. You know, first, you obviously mentioned about the Jaish Imam briefly. Um, and let's uh, let our listeners know that the Jaish is an organization which was uh, actually helped by the Pakistani ISI at, at, at its foundation, which is largely accepted in the academic community, at least. Now, you spoke about the strike in Balako. India said that it was a so-called preemptive non-military mm-hmm. action. In the breakdown, could you really explain to us what do we mean by a preemptive non-military action? Why was this the chosen path as well? And does this really fit in with uh, the larger context of the Modi administration's policy with Pakistan? Uh, in the, the preemptive non-military context was really about a legal justification for India's strikes, right? Which is uh, preemptive self-defense is allowed under international law. And so saying it was, as the Foreign Secretary Vijay Gokhale said in his statement the day after the Balakot strikes, that this was based on specific intelligence about um, uh, terrorists being trained in order to infiltrate into India with specific attacks and targets in mind. Uh, he implied that that was all true. So th- uh, that suggested that India was taking uh, was was acting in uh, in self defense, uh, knowing there was going to be an imminent strike. So so that was that element of the preemptive element of it was really to to justify this under international law. The non-military element was really to prevent further escalation and to indicate that it was not India was not trying to strike targets belonging to the Pakistani military, um, but actually target uh, a terrorist uh, thing and and also to keep civilian um, uh, casualties to a minimum. Uh, so therefore chose the target accordingly. So I would say this was done by India to really couch its action in a legal, uh, a legally justifiable way. And the fact that that India's action was not severely condemned, other things were condemned subsequently, but, but certainly that initial strike was not really significantly condemned by anyone, yeah. uh, suggests that that seems to have worked at least, or served that purpose. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Pakistan did not see it that way. Yeah. Um, and uh, in India's version, again, a lot of facts still remain to be verified. Pakistan's response was against was was a military response that was trying to target military sites in India. Correct. Um, Pakistan, of course, denies that. Says that it was only trying to get into Indian airspace uh, to retaliate against uh, Indian violations of Pakistani airspace. So, um, so I think that that is the real significance of that. It was really about a legal justification. No, you know, you said it was a legal justification um, of why India acted in sort of self-defense preemptively striking bases which could have posed a further threat to Indian national security. But what we saw subsequently, especially in media and in civil society discourse, was this mongering for more, basically. And, you know, we saw these artificial numbers, which were also inflated by people inside the government, including the president of the ruling party, Mr. Amit Shah. Uh, Don't you think that, you know, there should have been more restraint exercise from the government to sort of calm the situation down back home? I mean, this is difficult in this day and age, uh, you know, given the media environment. I would like, I mean, I try to draw people's attention to what, you know, Indian official, what were the Indian official statements? And, and there were really just three during the height of this this crisis. One was um, uh, on uh, February 26th, uh, that was uh, made by the foreign secretary after Balakot. Uh, then secondly, a brief statement made by the MEA spokesperson on February 27th, which uh, was the first indication, at least on the Indian side, of what happened in the dogfight earlier that day right. and the, and admitted to the downing of an Indian aircraft. 
uh, and the capture of a pilot. Uh, and then on February 28th, the Army Air Force and Navy spokespeople did a joint press conference where they indicated what, particularly the Army and Air Force side, what they had done and, and their version of events provided evidence, uh, apparently, of um, uh, a Pakistani air-to-air missile, which was used and, and which was uh, seen, appeared to have been uh, used by an F-16. So these were the three only official statements given by the Indian government. Subsequently, the air chief made a statement a little while later, did an interview. Um, I would try to differentiate that from the political histrionics that we've seen, uh, particularly in the context of the election. And there, I think we've seen both ministers, including serving ministers in the Indian government, uh, BJP leaders, uh, and, and, you know, Congress. I mean, we've seen political yeah, leaders of all stripes this, yes. uh, bicker over the details often inflate uh, the success of things, uh, um, uh, you know, see things that are not necessarily in line with India's official right, uh, positions. Yes. Now, in a prior age, uh, you could have differentiated these. One is clearly meant for a domestic audience. Yes. Uh, one was meant for uh, uh, an official uh, international audience. Correct. Uh, but I think uh, one of the challenges in this day and age is that these, these messages get blurred. And uh, what uh, somebody like uh, Amit Shah says on the campaign trail uh, whatever the veracity of it, uh, will obviously have uh, implications uh, for India's reputation, uh, not just in Pakistan, and it was certainly uh, heard there and, and uh, derided there, but also uh, in the international community. So I, I think it's just a challenge. This is at a particular time, you know, in the middle of election fever, um, you had two kind of parallel processes, and uh, and and in this day and age, uh, given the, the the media environment, these are getting these these uh, these paths are getting muddied. Now, you also spoke briefly about, um, you know, there hasn't yet been a complete verification of facts on um, what exactly was the damage in Balakot. Um, and a lot of people on the opposition have, have ridiculed the government in some sense, mm-hmm. maybe overarchingly at times. But one thing that was kind of striking was that in the international media fraternity, mm-hmm. including the Reuters and the BBC, mm-hmm. they ran accounts which were actually supported by the Pakistani mm-hmm. media. How do you explain that? And, you know, if there is a, also, again, to put on, put on the tinfoil hat, if there has to be a verification of facts, what might it look like? Right. So, you know, again, this, this tells you something, you know, in, a, in an era where we have so much information at fingertips, how sometimes basic information is very hard to assess and judge. Um, look, I think two things. One is um, uh, India has, as with the surgical strikes in 2016, India has deliberately not shared a great deal of information about the Balakot strike or what happened subsequently. And this is for two reasons. Uh, I mean, there are two very legitimate reasons for it. One is releasing such information could be quite inflammatory and lead to further escalation. Uh, so that is um, that, that is an abiding concern. And even with the surgical strikes for several months, there was no, no, no evidence released. And at that time, Pakistan was quite happy to play it down and, and that led to a, a, a non-escalation. Uh, so that's one thing. The second is, I think there is also, there does seem to be a little bit of a political strategy behind it as well, which is, uh, it has put the opposition in a bit of a predicament, uh, again, in the run-up right. to the election, which is by qu- questioning the veracity, it is being portrayed as questioning the armed services. And yeah, questioning the sincerity of the support. And, and suggesting a lack of patriotism and, and, and support for the military. At the same time, any supportive statements support the government Correct. in question, right? So, so it is. I think there's also been a, a to, to some degree a deliberate political ploy to to, um, in, uh, to to create this quandary for the political opposition in India. Um, 
Now, in terms of why we've seen other things, uh, you know, uh, there, there is a tendency on the part, and it's changed a little bit, but it hasn't changed that much, uh, for when there is an India-Pakistan spat, not just this one, to for the international media to report this is the Indian version of events and this is the Pakistani version of events. And in cases where the Indians don't put out their version of events for the reasons I mentioned, uh, partly non-escalation, partly domestic politics, uh, you, they tend to carry only the Pakistani version of events, right? So we saw after surgical strikes, you know, uh, members of the international media were taken to the line of control, you know, a few days later, fine, yeah. everything is fine, nothing happened here. Uh, but, you know, it's done a few days later, at which point, you know, bodies can be cleared and, and, and so forth. Um, you know, I think it is still uh, uh, significant that the site at Balakot has not been made open to the public. Um, even what little has been seen from outside was shown only a few days later, uh, 24 to 48 hours later. So, um, you know, satellite imagery is also, I think, quite questionable because uh, enough could have happened between passing the passing of, of, of satellites uh, to suggest that uh, for, for changes to have been affected on the ground. So I don't think any of this is conclusive one way or the other. Uh, I personally try to see what, and I, you know, I wrote about this in the Times of India the day after the event, which is basically say where do the Indian and Pakistani version of events overlap, um, and and you know, that is what we know for sure, uh, and everything else is uh, is, is speculative. Uh, right. So you know I think what is clear and and what is significant is that uh, India did uh, attempt to strike uh, Balakot, and Pakistan admits that. Indian bombs made it to Balakot. They claimed there was no damage. But even that is, I think, in, is, is significant uh, in itself, which is Correct. really shown. So, so uh, in, in that one area where the Indian and Pakistani versions of events overlap, I think that the, uh, the key significance lies there. How many, the extent of damage, I think, is, is beyond a point a bit more of an academic debate. Um, but I think the key thing was India had to show that it was able and willing to 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 strike in in Pakistan proper. I mean, the fact that there was use of air power for the first time since seventy one mm-hmm. is sort of uh, you know it's consequential in itself. Correct. Now, very often cited uh, you know juxtaposition which is made on the campaign trail is with the relative inaction of the UPA after twenty six eleven. Is this a really valid comparison? And can you really compare the sort of responses to both these things? Uh, you know, I think there were very good reasons. And, um, you know, the former National Security Advisor and Foreign Secretary, Shiv Shankar Menon, who, yeah, he, he has written in his book, uh, Choices, that, you know, about the aftermath of the, the Mumbai attacks. Um, and he has argued that that was the right thing to do at that time. Um, and I think that, the, the, you know, there was an overhang in some ways, you know, th- the rep- Pakistan's reputation was not what it is today in the international community. This is remember this was pre Osama bin Laden, pre uh, pre meaning the pre Abbottabad raid, um, and any kind of Indian action. You know, while I think there would have been a lot of sympathy for it, would may have been riskier. Pakistan was also in some ways better prepared for an attack. Uh, in in some ways, in some ways less. So I, I think all of these factors. You know, the the preparedness of the Indian military. You know, did it have the same? Did the Air Force have the same capabilities and equipment today that it did in you know, 11 years ago? I think these are all considerations to take into account. And so we run into counterfactual history here. Um, look, I, I, I do think it is clear now that certainly something is possible and a greater risk-taking is possible. But to say to automatically then say that so, that was also possible in 2008, I think, is, is uh, 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 a bit of a stretch. 
so I think you know every government has to weigh the pros and cons and make a call, and you don't know. Certainly, things are are known in hindsight uh, about whether a decision is the right one or not. But at the time, uh, I I don't envy any decision maker of any government uh, to be in a situation where where they have to make such a difficult call. Like for example. Uh, forget about what happened afterwards, but even with the Balakot strike, there was a good possibility that India would have lost one plane, at least. Correct. Uh, and it's quite remarkable that, that India did not. Uh, so uh, it, it's actually testament to the, the, the Indian Air Force that they, they were able to, to do that. So I think that, that risk would have been known by the political leadership when they authorized uh, such a strike, and, and it's a difficult call to make. And also, you know, this is a good juncture to really explain to people that there was a lot of information about the strike and about the decisions that were taken, which is not in the public and which obviously mm-hmm. only certain people who are making decisions on this can really say. And so I think that that's a fair warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's come to how the international community reacted uh, to this and you know how India's relationship with the international community sort of shaped some of this reaction. So, okay, you know, we discussed that India withdrew Pakistan's status as the most favored nation. And then India, oh, well, the United Nations Security Council tried to put Masood Azhar on the global terrorist list of the United Nations. That was vetoed by the Chinese government. Can you really explain and give us some context on why China vetoed the resolution? Yeah, so, you know, I think... um We've seen over time, and I don't, I don't think we should overstate this trend as well, but it is a steady trend of greater understanding and sympathy for India's Pakistan problem, uh, as I described it earlier. Um, I mean, I remember um, in the mid-2000s, um, you, you know, there were the, the general feeling in, in Washington or in other capitals, London, other capitals, was that, oh, this is just Indian-Pakistan bickering again. And why can't you know there were the feelings? You know, why why can India as the larger power be more magnanimous and you know, uh, sort of given to to Pakistan? Yeah, that right? president was being magnanimous just down the road in yeah. Vietnam. Yes, right, right, exactly. No, that was the you know kind of the old thinking, um, and I think we've seen over time uh, reputational costs, uh, Pakistan accruing reputational costs. Um, again, it, it was it was not one incident, but you know a combination of Abbottabad. Uh, the war in Afghanistan, the support for the Haqqani network, um, all of these things adding up over time. The Mumbai attacks, I think, were quite damaging to Pakistan's reputation. Um, and uh, so this is all added up over time. And so with each with each attack, with each incident, we see greater sympathy in the international community for India's plight. It, you know, you have a state here that is clearly not taking this seriously in terms of cracking down on a terrorist infrastructure that is that is very obviously operating on its soil. Um, so I think o- over time it is changing. Uh, the The sharpest change has been obviously with the West, um, which is now which has often been at the receiving end, including in Afghanistan. Um, a little bit of less change in, in other places. Uh, a significant change, although still again I won't overstate it, is with the Gulf Arab states, with both the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Uh, where before they were very supportive of India, but the fact that they invited um, External Affairs Minister Sushma Swaraj to the UIC meeting in, in Abu Dhabi um, uh, after this attack suggests again that there is a changing of, of uh, gradual changing of perception. It's a softening. A softening, although, uh, again, they do still have very strong defense ties with Pakistan, and that will continue. Um, the one country that has been uh, not changing as rapidly is China, 
and uh, that's because China, the China-Pakistan relationship is, is taken on a life of its own. It's a much older relationship. It was driven initially in the 1960s by a shared concern about India, um, but in, you know, took on different forms, including in, after 1976, uh, China agreeing to share nuclear technology and, and materials. In the late 80s and early 90s, China providing missile assistance to, to Pakistan. Uh, and then more recently, uh, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, uh, in some ways diversifying and deepening the relationship between China and Pakistan. It's now become a, an economic relationship, uh, much more than a, uh, what was earlier a very military-to-military relationship. So in some ways, you now have a China that is more dependent on Pakistan, and Pakistan is more dependent on China than in the past. Uh, and I think a betrayal of Pakistan would be seen as a, as a major um a major problem for for uh, uh, for China, and that's why we've seen uh, China in some ways risk uh, a larger relationship with India, risk uh, a lot its larger reputation to support uh, to block uh, what seems to be a very obvious thing, which is Masood Azhar's designation uh, at the UN Security Council. Uh, again, it, it's a lot. It's mostly a symbolic gesture because Jaish Mohammed, the group that he heads, is already listed uh, at the UNSC. Um, so, uh, but but China has repeatedly now uh, delayed or put a hold in this case on on his designation. So I think it, it's a testament again to the depth of the China, the growing depth of the China-Pakistan relationship, and uh, China believes in. And I've spoken to Chinese diplomats about this. That, if, as long as Pakistan addresses its concern, meaning China's concerns about terrorism, uh, and Pakistan has handed over to China, for example, Islamist actors, uh, that uh, it will it it will not take a stronger stance on global terrorism, whether it's affecting India or anyone else. You know, we'll have to leave it there, and we've had a really fruitful conversation. We've gone for hours on some of these issues alone. For joining us on this edition of the Breakdown, Dr. Rohit Shankar, thank you so much. Thank you. That was through a Jai Shankar. Since this is the last episode, I want you to go away with two conclusions which kind of applied to this episode, but also to everything that we've spoken about. The first thing, especially, is that please don't believe everything that you're told, especially in the media environment we live in today. I remember when things were trickling between Pulwama and Balakot, there were these videos circulating where it showed that India had conducted these sort of airstrikes in Balakot. And those videos actually happen to be from the game Counter-Strike. And so I really ask you again and again, please verify everything that you're told. The second conclusion kind of stems from the first, and that is, it is not unpatriotic, despite what you're told, to ask questions, even of the government. As I said in the very first episode, those folks are there to serve us, and those folks are responsible to us. Asking questions of the government, especially on military matters, doesn't necessarily mean you're asking questions of the military. And so I do encourage you to take full concern in these matters. Before I go, I'd really like to thank everyone associated with this podcast, especially uh, my good friend and the man who is behind the sound, Mr. Amanara. A big shout out to him. As well as all the listeners of this podcast, both here in India and especially my friends back in Edinburgh who are quite supportive of everything that I've done. And to all my guests who joined me, thank you so much for making this possible. I'll see you after the 23rd of May. Enjoy. Enjoy.